you are listening to episode 11 of The Transport, just like Snake Plissken. The Transport by Alex Ames You are listening to The Transport, a sci-fi military action thriller audiobook podcast, written and performed by Alex Ames. The music throughout the podcast is the song The Last True Boss by Kumiku, available on the freemusicarchive.org. Chapter 38 Leo The Nazi and Leo stared eye to eye, neither blinking. Leo was so scared, he even forgot to pee himself. Not even a squeal for help came over his lips. He was toast. Leo Parker died because he had followed a sexy girl's strange curiosity down into the basement of his workplace. In an alternate universe, without Eva, he now would run his numbers, would be utterly bored and would await a good game on TV. His life flashed before his inner eye, a quick succession of childhood memories, some bad, some good and comforting, being bullied at school because he was overweight even then, a college prank with friends that resulted in a burning tree on campus, his former girlfriend, whom he had dated shortly, before he had started with the Legion Analytics, but they had split up after a few months. The Nazi's face became a grimace of hate. Leo's ears popped from the gun blast inside the Camaro and the head of the Nazi disintegrated from a full load of bookshot, the remaining blood-spraying body falling backwards onto the ground. Leo turned and saw Eva stretched out beside him, the smoking shotgun in her hands, ratching the reload. You... You... you saved me. Luckily, this thing was loaded, Eva said and sat up. What happened? I was outside and the dead guy sat behind the wheels of the Mustang. You had some sort of seizure, you don't remember? Eva looked at him with glassy eyes, the first time Leo saw her clueless. No idea. But you are right, there is a sensory break in my memory. How long was I out? No idea. Ten minutes? Fifteen? It is a bit scary. Everything is out, including this car. They have a blanket. Eva grimaced. Not good. Who are they? And what on earth is a blanket? Later. We need to get away from here. The blanket has been lifted, but we don't know for how long. Drive, Leo. I need to fill you in, in case... Leo looked at his killer girlfriend. In case you have another seizure? 
She looked him straight in the eyes. You might need to destroy the basement on your own, should I get disabled. Leo's eyes grew wide as he realized that Eva was not human. It all clicked together as she used the word disabled. Her speed, the social awkwardness, the steely body he ran into, and her seizure, which had turned out to be some sort of computer reset. You are not one of us, he simply stated after a long pause. You are a machine. I explain later, Leo. We need to drive. We'll need to destroy the lab. Destroy the lab? Are your circuits smoldering? I am no hero. Forget it. Our little killing spree in Rucktown already had me scared shitless. We talk about it later. Just drive. As I said, the car is dead. She reached over and turned the ignition. The motor began to purr like a tiger on steroids, and Leo rolled his eyes. I told you, the blanket has been lifted. Weapons are still in the trunk? Eva asked. Of course. Wasn't that why we came here? We drive around the corner, load everything into my car, dump this blood bank, and off we go. Good plan, Leo. Chapter 39 Charles Within minutes after the presidential video conference, Charles was shuttled by helicopter from Arlington to Andrews Air Base while someone looked for a fast option to move him into New Mexico. Charles waited in a small cafeteria in front of a tactical laptop that mirrored the tech room screens while the first reports came in about the situation, his headset on. A Green Beret, Lieutenant Morales, gave a quick report by patched in phone through the laptop. We were on a regular training exercise here in the New Mexico desert when the action started. Suddenly, boom, everything stops working for about 10 minutes. Everything. Vehicles, comm gear, phones, battery watches, battery-powered scope stabilizers, anything electric. And then it started working again? Someone in the call asked. At first, we thought so, yes. The vehicles started up again, our clocks blinked, zero hundred hours, and our electronic weapons became operational. Electrics in general work again, but radio connectivity is still gone. How do you then call in your report? Charles asked. We decided to relocate and after a few miles communication picked up again. Phone and team radio. We investigated a little by moving around and there seems to be a hot zone that still suppresses any radio signals. Another patched in party threw in. The effect appears to be a circle judging from other reports we received. The center could be near your transport. We can't really tell yet. Charles cleared his throat. Gentlemen, 
I'm not a military person, but we might have a military situation at hand. Just for the sake of argument, let's assume that a foreign power managed to occupy the transport zone. As you can see, they managed to secure the territory. How would your military minds evaluate the situation and come up with a solution? The three officers were quiet. You're kidding, the transport colonel said eventually. This is a terrorist attack. The object of yours is big and heavy. Let them carry it away and die trying. My question was a different one, colonel. The bad guys had to understand that the object is too heavy to steal. But they captured it anyway, under our watch. Which means they have a plan, and we don't. Charles raised an eyebrow at the camera. Another question from the military. Are we time-pressed? Can't we just starve them out? Charles thought briefly about the spaceship and what potential devastating weapons it could bear. Consider it a good idea to get the object back under our control as soon as possible. Treat the territory as if it were Manhattan or Washington DC. That visibly startled the officers on the tiny screens. What is this object? someone asked again. Something important of consequence if not captured back. Number of enemy forces? Your guess is as good as mine. Small. Two digits from the observations we made during the attack, someone suggested. And they have some sort of superweapon that gives the dominance, the Air Force colonel stated. Any other surprises and capabilities we should be aware of? Unknown, Charles said truthfully. 30 years, and we know nothing. The people in the call were momentarily distracted by their phones and people talking to them. We need to end this call, safe trip, the Air Force colonel said and vanished from view. The other screens emptied after a few moments too. Charles found himself tapping the screen multiple times like an old fuzzy TV set. Operator, what's going on? Where did they all go? The operator's calm voice came on. Chain of command. The president called them off? My guess is they want to discuss options without a civilian being present. But this is my operation, Charles protested. The operator had the good grace not to answer. It was my operation, Charles sighed and removed his headset. He was in the thick of it. The president had given him an impossible task and he did not understand what was going on. Nor to do. He gloomily stared at the screens before him, either empty or without signal. He was sidelined and didn't like it. The object was his to keep, but at the pleasure of the acting president Every president involved in Tin Can could decide anew how to approach the situation. Charles wondered if his God-keeping predecessor had ever been in similar situations. Truman surely had to make the biggest decision. Keep Tin Can under wraps, funding its keeping and investigation. Kennedy. Charles had a sinking feeling.
An aide came running into the cafeteria, waving at Charles. Taxi's ready, the aide said. We're taking some troop transport? Charles asked the aide. We were asked to provide you a Ferrari to New Mexico. And a Ferrari you'll get. The aide mimicked a fast-spoken TV ad disclaimer. Certain restrictions might apply. The offer might be replaced by a comparable model. After a second pause. Sir. A Jaguar. Charles liked fast cars and hated airplanes. Fast-tracked car racing. Government-sponsored. Speed trap exempt. But nothing worse than flying. A hornet. Charles stopped smiling. There were things worse than flying. Chapter 40 Zena The wrecks on the highway had stopped burning but continued smoking. All shooting had stopped. Major Bristol was either dead or captured. Mac and Zena observed the scene from the elevated cover of the boulder and both shared their only field glass. There was some activity on the MMTUs and a yellow school bus had appeared from the direction of veracity. What's your take? Mac asked. Sina yet had to brief the team of her observations. Not sure what they are doing over there. Not a field trip, that's for sure. I recognized Gorsuch, Kimmick and Hammer working among the civilians when I scanned the control units. Yeah, I saw them too. They did not look as if under duress. That worries me. An instant brainwash? This procedure I witnessed must do something. You're still addicted to Stephen King novels? Mac asked. Guilty. Even to myself, I sound crazy. The situation over there was bizarre, but orderly. They are executing some sort of plan. Sabotage the MMTUs? They wouldn't need Gorsuch and Hammer for this. Some explosives or fire accelerants would do. My guess? They will start up the transport again. Let's have a word with the team and you brief us about your observations, Mac decided as the current senior rank on site, and they slid off the boulder back onto the desert ground. The rest of the team assembled in the shadow of a natural rock overhand for a sit-rap. Sina, you've been closest to our opposition. What can you tell us? Mac asked. Sina was quiet for a moment. Start with the factual stuff first, Mac proposed. Then you can tell us the difficult things. But we need to understand what we are up against. Sina concentrated on what she had seen. They all wear civilian clothing. Not just any clothing, normal clothing, as if they just came from work to hijack an UFO instead of going for lunch. Huh? Mac said. 
Exactly my thoughts too. What about weapons? Caspar asked. Brand new and quality stuff. Someone had money and curated the spend carefully for the occasion. Glock handguns, M16 rifles, MP5 submachine guns. And while passing the attack nest, I noticed several discarded javelin tubes. The soldiers murmured. Javelins were state-of-the-art, badass stuff. A position with better weaponry than yourself always was a bad omen. Hard to come by, Caspar stated. Even though it sounded improbable, someone had gone on a military shopping spree. Makes you wonder if our whole operation was a setup from the start. Mac and Cena exchanged quick glances, their thoughts exactly the previous evening. What happened to the lieutenant? Mac asked. Now for the bad news. Kimmick is a traitor. He captured Gorsuch and myself. That bastard even bragged about his role. The army man. No idea how he managed to embed himself in the mission. Mac shook his head. I bet he also provided the weapon pipeline for the attackers. Another round of murmurs from the team. We will deal with him in time, Caspar said, everyone nodding consent. Cena continued. The attacker's boss was called Smitty, and he actually looked like a Smitty, so normal, so everyday. An office worker, white collar with expensive designer glasses, overweight, pudgy, intelligent eyes. Normal, but determined. Fanatics, cult, foreign operatives? Fanatics, maybe, as if they... Uh, difficult to describe. Sina fought for words. They look normal, but act as if they are in the military. But on the other hand, they are lacking basic army skills, like a layman theater troupe playing soldiers. Tactically sound, following a clear plan, but they do not understand how to really fight or shoot. Everyone froze when a terrible scream echoed over from the stack of powerline poles where Sina had witnessed the bathtub scene. A loud, top-of-the-lung wail suddenly cut off. Jesus, what are they doing? Max stared at Sina, worried. Don't know, Sina lied and averted Max's eyes. She suspected it had something to do with the ugly, green, slug-like creature she had glimpsed. Was the person eaten alive? What for? Some kind of ritual? The screams continued for another minute and then suddenly broke off. The team looked at the two remaining leaders. Everyone was silent. Sina stopped and breathed in and out. That... That's the really difficult part to comprehend. Something terrible is going on here. It's not about the object alone. A bigger conspiracy? Gorsuch, they were about to perform a procedure on him. Well, she grimaced, seems they did it. Gorsuch was forced to strip before a bathtub filled with some milky white fluid. The lady guard was about to pour the contents of a big glass container into the tub when Bristol took her down, allowing us to escape. I saw what was in there. It was a 
giant green slug. The visual and the stress took its toll. Sina suddenly doubled over, fell onto her knees and threw up. The image of the slug's wiggling feelers danced in front of her. Ludovic kneeled down and gave her a water flask. Sina talked to us. What about the slug thing? She slowly lifted her head when she was sure that no more would come. There's something evil going on. The slug. I've seen nothing like this before. She described the horror creature. Had the other captives met a similar fate? No one dared to ask the elephant in the room question. Better to be kept in the dark and keep your sanity, Sina thought. They stopped the depressing sit rep and took an eat and drink break from the small emergency rations they had carried in their backpacks. Mac and Sina briefly discussed their strategy going forward. Casper produced a small scale paper map of this section of New Mexico which they peered at. Here's quick orientation where we're at and what's ahead of us, Max said to the group. Highway runs down here. The junction lies in the approximate middle. Up there, 16 miles north, lies Veracity. Everything else is desert, some irrigated farming. There's nothing between us and this town. No civilization, no mountains, no farm, no canyons. It's hilly and rocky, but nothing unsurmountable, Caspar shrugged. Sixteen miles, eight hours of brutal track if you push it. Max said, double this estimate with our quota of injuries. Taking the road would save us a lot of time. Maybe we run lucky and find transportation at a farmhouse. But until then it's minimum eight miles to go. Not on the road, too dangerous. The enemy knows we are still around. If I were them, I'd patrol the road once in a while and pick us out from afar, Sina said. What's this? Mac pointed at a small black square with the label Kendall Station. Buildings alongside the road, a farm or gas station. Worth a shot to check out, might gain us some wheels. Any chance for transportation will make our track into veracity easier. Max stood up and oriented himself. Kendall Station is around two miles from here and lies on the road to Veracity. We keep our distance from the road, walk north. Then, after about two miles, we check out the target with a small group. Alex Ames here. Sorry for the little interruption. This story will continue momentarily. If you like a good thriller, check out my 2020 novel COVID Trouble. COVID Trouble is a novel in my ongoing troubleshooter series featuring the corporate troubleshooter Paul Trouble. COVID Trouble takes place in Paris, France after the first lockdown of 2020 just when life seems to normalize again during the worldwide life-threatening pandemic and France is getting ready for some well-earned summer vacations. Someone is poisoning supermarkets with the virus. Is it a lunatic? Is it a terrorist act? 
Paul Trouble will find out. A lot of bullets will fly, there are car chases, gunfights, rooms full of dead people, deadly fire traps and many, many, many ways to die. COVID Trouble is available as ebook at most online retailers and as paperback at Amazon and some other retailers. Check it out, it's a ride. It's inspired by the current events of that crazy, crazy year 2020. COVID Trouble is the name, Alex Ames, the author. That being said, buy the book. And now let's jump back into the transport. Chapter 41 Charles Charles's flight in the two-seater Hornet jet took him four hours, the longest hours of his life. He never had been a good plane passenger in the comfort of a modern plane, a constant anxiety flying with him. Within the tight confines of a sound barrier-breaking military jet, air travel became hell. The trip included two in-air refills, which he endured with eyes closed until the pilot had confirmed the undocked maneuver and had accelerated again. The pilot was no nonsense and offered only the briefest of comments, which was fine by Charles, who was too scared to listen anyway. They saw the sun rise in the west, dusk reversed as the landscape raced by beneath them at Mach. 1.7, a strange and confusing effect. He touched down at Holloman Air Base an hour earlier than he had started. Ground personnel peeled him out of the pressure suit, handed him his crumpled business jacket, and before he was able to say thank you, he was ushered away to a waiting jeep. He swore that one of the engineers near the jet whispered something that sounded like James Bond to his co-worker. A Hispanic woman officer in fatigues with a green beret on her head waited for him. She had a compact, athletic body with a lot of muscles, probably needed to keep up with her green beret boys. Her black hair was cut down to a fraction of an inch, which gave her a punky look and her intelligent eyes watched wearily. Let me guess, Charles said. Lieutenant Morales, your cap gave you away. Good afternoon, good evening, sir, she said. Welcome to New Mexico. Ever been here before? She led him over to the waiting jeep. I'm not here for the tourism, lieutenant, Charles answered, sounding more abrasive than he wanted. Morales visibly walked more upright. Apologies, sir. I'll bring you to the meeting. Charles stopped walking and turned to her. Listen, if there was anyone to apologize, it must be me. I'm not my best today. A project of mine that looked simple has turned haywire with unknown, world-altering consequences. You and your team helped me, and I appreciate this. Can we start over? Morales gave him a quick glance. No offense taken. You lost part of your team today in battle, sir. Rathless the best of us. Your team? Yeah, I did. The jeep took them to an already revved-up helicopter on the other side of the field, and they were off, up in the air again. Morales handed him a headset. 
We are working on a plan to get you into the zone. Thank you, Lieutenant, Charles said. Don't get your hopes up, Doctor. You haven't heard our proposals yet, Morales smiled. I'm pretty sure that... Charles started but then interrupted himself. Never mind. My own command has contacted me too. We have the order to get back your mysterious object back as all cost. Now that we are in the middle of it, mind to share what it's all about? Charles glanced over to her. It's complicated. It's a spectacular secret and all involved presidents so far decided to keep it under extreme wraps, including our current chief. A president agreeing with his predecessors? Morales snorted. That man. I assure you it's not political. It's indeed bigger than everything you can imagine. We sent our teams into the unknown, Morales said. They knew? The people on the ground, yes, but you might not realize that the military is a machine where many cogs are moving together. Must move together. You leave some cogs out of the loop, the machine sputters. Charles sighed. Major Argos had given him the same argument, and both military leaders were probably right. With his amateur know-how, he had prepared the mission, keeping only the people in the know who had to eye the object. Had this been a mistake? On the other hand, how do you keep a secret? You keep the number of eyes minimal. Morales could read his mind. Don't get your head up over this, sir. What is done is done. Learn from it. The big picture I'm holding back, I do for a good reason, Charles defended himself. In case you, that you need certain specifics, please ask. But for now, simple explanations have to do. We were transporting something secret and big from A to B. Too big to hijack, too locked up to open and too complicated to be moved by unsophisticated terrorists. The sort of weapon we have never encountered before. We need some hint here. Whom or what are we facing? Morales pressed. Charles avoided the piercing stare of the soldier. That... Is it the Russians, the Chinese or some homemade terrorists? Charles thought about the options. All three options are possible, but not probable. He sighed. Let's make a deal then, Charles offered. In case we manage to find the object again and we need to engage in something reckless, I'll brief anyone involved. Fair? Morales nodded. I'm not happy, but you obviously read the art of the deal. You have a funny way of rapping compliments, Charles tried to make a joke and glanced down at the desert below. Where are we going? Morales said, we established a forward base just outside what we considered the safe perimeter. We're still in a sort of experimentation phase of what works and what doesn't, communication and electricity wise. You can easily imagine what this disruption does to a plane flying. From high-tech flying machine to brick within a second. All aircrafts involved in the transport are gone without a trace. So we are treating carefully. She studied Charles. You seem to be confused by all of this. I am. I have no idea what's going on, Charles admitted. Would you be offended if I told you that this seems the agency default state? Morales offered. And Charles burst out laughing. 
releasing the tension that had built up during the last hours. You are a different person when you laugh, doctor. Remember that on your next date. Thanks for the suggestion, Charles said. I'll try it out on you. Was she hitting on him? Who else will be involved when we land? There's a base staff available at your command, Morales answered. Some additional senior staff will join us soon, too, no doubt. But you had the fastest transport. Charles felt heat rising as the red scorching late afternoon sun shone through the side window. He had put on his suit jacket before strapping in and the sweltering heat was killing him. But he did not dare to take it off during the ride because that would have meant to unstrap. Everyone just one cross. He shook his head in despair. This was a nightmare and not what he had signed on to. You lost your team. A few minutes later, they followed a highway through the desert landscape and approached a parking lot of a trucker rest stop that had been converted into a makeshift military base. Several helicopters and tents lined up, the highway blocked by seriously armed army personnel. And just 20 yards away, several regular trucks with trailers stood parked, stranded in the desert. We can't get any closer. A mile from here, the phenomenon goes into effect, Morales explained. About where you see the road lost in the haze. The helicopter touched down and Charles was finally able to shed his jacket while they walked to what was the command tent. Do you have water for me and something more suitable to dress in? He asked. Water? Yes. Dress, I'll see, Morales replied and relayed the request to an army staffer. We are all green barrettes here. The exercise happened five miles north. Plus, the truck stop offers power and running water and the highway can be converted into a landing strip for airships on short notice. I'm impressed. Charles really was. He had a déjà vu when he entered the command post. Everyone turned to look at him. Everyone evaluated him instantly. Everyone looked at each other with a who is this guy face. Almost comedic. The command post was mercifully low-tech. A well-lit round map table dominated the middle with various small wooden pieces placed on it. Four Ruggedized computers were operated by some lower ranks and around the table a group of Green Beret officers and sergeants looked at Charles and Morales when they entered. If there was one thing that Charles had learned in the Pentagon Situation Room earlier today, it was acting like the boss, even if he was basically clueless. Introductions were made, most men and women were specialists of some sort, Explosives, insertions, sniper diversified for the multitude of tasks that might hit a green beret at short notice. Charles asked to take the meeting on the road. A staff sergeant named Whittaker extracted an old-style metallic pencil pointer and stepped up to the map laid out on the tactical desk. We've made the last known coordinate of the transport Ground Zero the highway junction towards veracity. The markers show you the area that we can confirm as the zone. 
We were not able to verify it at too many places yet, but it appears to be a circle of about 100 miles in diameter, with its center around veracity. We are lucky that it's a smack in the middle between Albuquerque and El Paso, as far away as we can be from anything. We are about here, five miles west of a New Mexico town called Rudolfo. Whitaker tapped the location with his pointer. So the effect appears to spread out quite a distance, Charles pointed at the estimated circle. Whitaker nodded. From what we could investigate, geometrically, it's not a circle, it's a sphere. It reaches up into the atmosphere too. That's why drones and AVAX were put out of order, and why some low-orbit satellites are not working properly either. We are completely blind from above. Four of the birds sailed through the incident zone, all shut down completely. The brains in Houston and the Pentagon are busy recalculating routes for the birds to avoid more crashes. It will cost them super expensive lifetime, I heard. Charles knew that observation satellites had only a limited fuel supply and any steering maneuver decreased its effective lifespan in orbit. How many civilians are affected? Charles asked. The map showed various towns and townships in the drawn circle. This is among the least populated areas in the US, but still we are talking about 50,000 people. Mostly residents of veracity, and some smaller townships, farms, plus tourists, truckers and travelers. What else can you tell us about the zone? Charles was curious. Morales answered. We did some additional tests, but gained nothing new. You enter the zone, and the more you get in, all things electric will stop working. All electricity goes out. Vehicles, cars, radios, lights, phones, all dead. Even piezo-triggered cigarette lighters do not work. Only mechanical Flintstone lighters. How far did you go inside? We dared two miles, then stopped. The effect stayed and we were not sure about effects on our health. Whitaker tapped his heart in his head. You might remember, we run on electric impulses too. All your team returned safely? Charles inquired. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Charles stared at the map. This makes no sense. Why hijack the transport and then activate a weapon that blocks you from moving it? The MMTUs won't work under these conditions. There is an explanation for that, I'm sure. Let's assume. He made a mental flip of a coin on his personal theories. All right, this is what we do. We need eyes on the ground and we need weapons on the ground. Morales, you mentioned a plan, how we get to ground zero as soon as possible. Morales cleared her throat. We have two approaches, both will work, both have the same limitations. What's the limitation? Charles asked. In both cases, quantity. Without technical equipment, we can only move a limited number of troops and material into ground zero. With the speedy scenario, ETA about two hours after incursion, we managed to bring in five people, lightly armed with pistols and one long gun. That is fast, but five troops limit our action massively. I agree, sir. It's reconnaissance without engagement. 
Maybe we'll find some additional firepower in Veracity, but that's only a guess as we do not know what's going on there. The alternative? The slow scenario. ETA about 12 hours later than scenario 1. We will show up with about 50 to 100 adequately armed soldiers, but only a few heavy weapons. 50 or 100? Can't be more exact. It depends whether the people are able to ride horses over a long distance, and we are not sure how many riders we're able to get on short notice, nor horses. There are farms around here, but it's also damned spread out. Setup time will be much longer, let's say 20 horses by tomorrow morning, 50 in 24 hours. Ah, I understand, Charles said. The alien invasion is fought out on horseback. And the speedy scenario? We incur with gliders, Whittaker explained. Like Snake Plissken? Charles asked referring to the movie hero from Escape from New York, played by Kurt Russell, who landed on top of the World Trade Center in a sailplane. That brought him some laughs from the staff. I am not aware of this snake project, Whitaker said, obviously not a movie connoisseur himself. We'll use light hang gliders with composited frames and sails. Cool, Charles said, and you only have five gliders available. Exactly and three soldiers trained. It was part of our exercise here in the desert, and we were interrupted by current events. How long does the training take? Charles asked. A day, if you mind your life. You have to be aware we can't rely on thermic air racing to keep the hang gliders up in the air for 50 to 100 miles. In this sort of climate, the cruise angle of decline will be about 3 to 5 percent, so in theory we'll need to launch the gliders from about 5 miles high to reach a point 100 miles away. 5 miles up? In a lightweight glider? Charles couldn't hide his skepticism. What about oxygen and insulation? Turbulence? We got that. The main challenge is the cold. The air is about minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit up there. We have battery-driven flight suits with us, but the equipment adds weight, which you will miss in weapons and in ammunition. The sergeant shrugged. Like I said, it's faster than on horseback, but not necessarily better. And more deadly. How does that work? The launch, I mean. You need to bring the gliders up, Charles pointed up. By tower plane. And don't worry, it will work. It's actually the scenario I, we've been training for. A long-range, high-altitude incursion with gliders. Morales took over. Doc, those are our options. What's the verdict? Charles looked around the small group, mostly poker faces, some grim. My favorite aunt has this saying, if you can't decide between chocolate or strawberry ice cream, take both. This brought another small laugh among the group. We will take both options. Gliding in to check things, riding in to engage. Good choice, Morales agreed and looked at her team. I'll pass it up to the chain to give us the necessary support. And I need four volunteers to join me. Charles glanced at his watch. Find me a different dress, please, and I could use some food. Have a plan ready by then. When he left, led by Morales, one of the Green Beret commented, Sotto voce. They grow up so fast. 
This is it for this week's edition of The Transport, the sci-fi action thriller written and performed by Alex Ames. If you liked what you just heard, leave a comment in whatever platform you downloaded or listened to the podcast. If there are stars, star me, help me spread the good. And again, my shameless self-promoting plug, if you liked it so far and can't bear the suspense, buy the book. If you can bear the suspense, buy the book. And another shameless self-promotion, if you liked what you heard and think that many of your potential customers might be listening to this podcast too, feel free to contact me at alex.ames.writing at gmail.com or send me a private message on Twitter or Instagram at alexameswriting, one word. The middle section of this podcast could be reserved for you. And that's it, for real. Wherever you are, whoever you are, thank you, take care, I hear you next time. This is Alex Ames, this was The Transport, over and out. <laughs>